sound of sensation across the nation. Listen to Radio Goodies. Boom. Welcome to the Goodies Pirate Podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. I'm Tom. I'm Rob. And welcome to the first of our specials, Goodies After the Goodies. What happened next? What happened next? So last episode we were talking about Animals Are People Too, which of course was the final episode of the Goodies, the last of the ITV episodes. We discussed back when they moved to ITV that they had a three-year contract. Clearly they didn't make three seasons. Richard, why was that? When we last left our heroes. <laughs> <laughs> the wash-up of the ITV series is, it rates quite well, actually. They got over 11 million for, for the bulk of the episodes. But the issue they encounter is it's quite expensive, so they overspend. But probably more importantly in terms of the production of the goodies is the amount of time and resources it chews up in terms of setting up a lot of the gags and the stunts and the visual effects. And something we talked about was... With ITV, and particularly LWT, not being nearly as ongoing and sophisticated and wide-ranging as the BBC, they didn't have this large prop department and costume department or just corporate knowledge to go to. No. So everything had to be done from scratch and conceptually from scratch as well. Yeah, and the, the, the thing seems to be is when they lured them over there or when, when they joined LWT, LWT really probably didn't perhaps consider just how difficult and time-consuming a show like The Goodies is to make. Or was to make sort of looked at it as a draw card hey look what we poached i think so well they were on a bit of a bender of poaching bbc talent at the time and as we said look they don't have the in-house resources that the bbc have at their command so the the other thing that happens is there's a change of director they've been brought across by michael great uh who by that time had moved on and been replaced by a chap called john burt now the thing seems to be about him is that perhaps he was a little bit more of a bean counter than great so they quite quickly work out that it's actually cheaper to pay the goodies for the rest of their contract than it is to make the episodes. And that's pretty much what happens. They obviously are then left in the situation, well, LWT are not going to fund any more episodes, so they could probably either see if one of the other ITV franchises would be willing to pick them up, or of course they could maybe go back to the BBC and... See if there's been a change of heart. Through the supplication entrance. Yes, very much. But obviously those would be a bit humiliating and probably would require them to be bought out of their contract. So the other option available to them is that they simply don't work as the goodies for the remainder of the contract period, which is, as we know, this is the option that they choose. I think it got down to the point where they weren't allowed to use the name the goodies if they went anywhere else because LWT had purchased... The goodies as, as yes, an entity. For three years, basically, the LWT owned the goodies. So they can work together, but they can't call themselves the goodies. Mm. Coupled with that, of course, is what we've been discussing across a number of episodes, really, across season eight and season nine, which is at this stage, whilst there are many good episodes, the goodies are repeating their tropes. They're a mm. long way from their series. But we have said a number of times that they are looking a lot older, that they've slowed down, and comedy is moving past them at this point. I mean, they are no longer those rebellious young men bashing against the establishment that they were back in 1970. 
they were obviously quite disappointed that they weren't allowed to renew because they thought Series 9 was quite good, particularly in terms of their performances. They thought they'd now reached a point where their performances were probably at their peak. Plus, of course, there is a lot of stuff happening in the 80s that they could really make fun of. Um, you've now got the rise, obviously, of Mrs Thatcher. You're about to go into things like the Falkland War, etc., that they felt they probably, you know, a goodie spin on a lot of those could be quite well done. And certainly if you look at the episode politics where Graeme is doing the whole corporate ad man sort of thing, you can see some of the way they might have done that. Hmm. So, yes, basically that's the end, really, of the goodies. So let me ask a harsh question to hopefully provoke some discussion. Even if the goodies had wanted to go elsewhere, did anybody want them at this point? Well, apparently 11 million people per episode were prepared to sit down and watch them. Mm. Now... We today look at 11 million people watching a television show in Britain and think that that's fantastic, but even that wasn't sufficient for them to be welcome no. back. But no. I think there was still an audience for their type of humour, assuming that they were sufficiently well-resourced and, you know, and, and backed by the bean counters at the top. There is a shift, and we'll probably talk about this later, particularly within the BBC, I think, of how the goodies obviously is perceived, because we then go into the period where the BBC aren't repeating it, they are obviously getting quite upset about the fact that it's never being repeated when you're getting endless repeats of stuff like Porridge and The Good Life, mm. um, a lot of those other contemporary, for them, sitcoms. I think mm. I think we sometimes we concentrate too much on the fact that the rise of alternative comedy signalled the end or the death knell of the goodies, where I think there was room for the goodies style of comedy. You start to get those, and I hesitate to use the word like gentler, but you start to see a lot of those comedies like As Time Goes By and those sort of that would appeal to an audience who probably aren't interested in having bastards screened at them every week by the young ones. Basically anything that Penelope Keith was in. Yes. Mm. You know, executive stress and Savannah Bourne and that sort of But by the same token, you only have so much money to make so many hours of comedy. And once you've done a whole lot of you know new and cutting edge stuff to show that you are with it and hip yeah. and looking for the new big thing, and you've done a couple of series with Penelope Keith and you know, Peter Bowles, is there any money or are there hours left to do the goodies? Well, is it really that LWT season was right on the cusp before the young ones? It is. So would 12 months later mean 11 million again or would it have meant 5.5 million or less? Well, only if they were programmed against each other, really. Well, I don't know, because as people's tastes change, and as I say, if they're going to get the young ones out there with all of that anarchy type of humour there would people make the jump back? I mean, how many cross-references of people watching both The Young Ones yeah. and Fresh Fields? You know? <laughs> but, I mean, look, I don't know that we're representative of any particular broad demographic in this room, but, I mean, I know when I was a boy, I was quite prepared to watch The Young Ones yeah. and also The Goodies as well. Yeah, that's mm. true. Mm. Uh, and a whole host of, basically, middle class sitcoms from the States. Well, I suppose Britain. you've only got two channels to choose from, you're kind of stuck, and, aren't and, you? And, but... that's what you had in, <laughs> and that's what you had in Britain. I know that there was going to be the rise of additional channels coming Well, Channel 4, I mean, arrives on the landscape not all that long after this. But viewing possibilities weren't so fragmented that you know mm. the audience was going to fall away too far, you'd think, initially at least. So let me put another hypothetical alternate reality to you. If they'd been patient and sat on their hands for a bit longer with the BBC and maybe you know, not done Series 9 when they did it, but done it six months or 12 months later, would their relationship with the BBC have continued and they might have got another two or three series of that into the 80s? Look, they might have, but as you intimated before, they've been on since the 1970s. You're getting new people coming into positions of influence and programming decision-making. Do they continue to commission an old show or, yeah. or do they bring on new talent? And I, we I, had that situation in the late 70s where alternative comedy was on the rise and you've got a new group of stand-up comedians who are coming through, the Alexi Sales, the Rick Males, all those people. 
who are ready and ripe to move on to television. And I was going to say, there are anecdotes, I believe, around some of, you know, comedians like Eric Sykes, who'd been staples of BBC programming, going in and pitching series ideas and sort of being told, oh, look, really, actually, we're not that interested in you anymore. We want to do this new, wacky, innovative stuff. Well, yeah, Ben Elton effectively killed Benny Hill. Well, yes. You know, dance on the grave. But look, in the end, I think that if they had stayed with the BBC, they would have come up to what Doctor Who faced in 84, 85, where a whole host of old shows on the BBC were culled. Mm. And I think that would have probably happened to the goodies, despite you know their viewing figures probably still being up there. I mean, we are all Doctor Who fans, and so we know about you know, the first hiatus and then the, the cancelling of Doctor Who. In the various different books and analyses and documentaries about the cancelling of Doctor Who in 89, one point that Sylvester McCoy makes, and I think he's correct, is that in television you don't get any professional kudos or glory for recommissioning something that someone else made. You get... Uh, glory and kudos for being the person who found or discovered or started something new. So if you're somebody trying to make their career in the BBC or you're a you know, director or controller who's trying to you know, build a reputation, doing an 11th or 12th series of the goodies doesn't get you any kudos, but discovering the young ones or commissioning yes prime minister or whatever does. So at some point you want to re- renew it. I mean, you know, it's the same as why something like All Creatures Great and Small got axed, not because it wasn't being viewed or it wasn't popular, they're just like, how many series of this do we make? It's time to make something new. Well, I think about mm. that, that and the fact that they'd actually run out of stories. But <laughs> they, had, they had several years before. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, that's true, actually. There are only yes. so many vets that can stick so many hands up so many cows, yes. Yes. <laughs> so, look, that's, I think, a good summation of the goodies ceasing to be the goodies. But it's important to stress there was no animosity within the three of them. They were very happy to continue to work together, and in yes. fact did. Yes, indeed they did. I mean, one of the projects they do not all that long after the goodies is Banana Man, Mm. which they had a great time doing. This is 29 Acacia Road, and this is Eric, the schoolboy who leads an amazing double life. But when Eric eats a banana, an amazing transformation occurs. Eric is Banana Man, ever alert for the call to action. That is a really fun one. And I do remember at one point suddenly realising that, hang on, that sounds like Bill. And that sounds like Tim. And then sort of look at the credits and go, hey, wow, that is the goodies. And mm. then, you know, trying to pick who was doing all the voices. So Graham was Banana Man, I Graham, think. Tim, Tim is Eric. Yes. And Graham is Banana Man. And Bill is the Crow sidekick. Yes. And then there are various other villains and monsters, etc. Well, I think they sort of took turns pretty yeah, much, I, was, I think, yeah. at the monsters. Tim was Apple Man. I think Graham was the professor that creates Apple Man. Professor Gloom or whatever he's called. It is one of those lovely five-minute cartoons, very much of that generation, and Danger Mouse is another one of them, that you watch as a kid, it's very entertaining and funny. You watch as an adult and realise just how many little gags and asides and things Mm. were in there that you never got as a kid, (laughs) but are very, very funny as an adult. So that, that is one series that stands up very well. What other projects did they do together? before we look at them individually. Well, obviously, I mean, there's, and and that's continued to the current day, they're still doing, I'm sorry, having a clue, just starting to take off, I think, at that point. It was. The 80s got to its heights when you had, effectively, your dream team of stable panellists. So you had Graham and Barry Cryer on one team, and you had Tim and Willie uh, Willie Rushton on the other, with the host of Humphrey Littleton in the centre. And that team lasted until Willie Rushton sadly passed away. Mm. Bill had done a few episodes in the early 70s. If it wasn't about music, he just wasn't interested, so he dropped out of that running and 
they had John Cleese and Joe Kendall and all that white road. Well, I think after Andy Rushton passed away, they basically just got a guest comedian. And they they did, think, didn't they? Every two episodes, because they take two at a time. You know, Stephen Fry did it. Jeremy Hardy's done it. Jack D, who's now the host since Humphrey Littleton passed away. And that's still going now. It's up to season 65. It's two seasons a year. Yeah. And it's been on continuously since 1971. And is, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue is it pre-written or is yeah it, and were Tim and Graham writing for the show at that time uh, Graham is constantly writing for it but I think they all had input into it okay. but a lot of it there I mean the books that came out of it I think you can see there's a pretty heavy Graham influence in it but he actually he's only done I think two episodes in the past two or three years one thing they did do together as the goodies was of course their reunion special which was on not well, it feels like not that long ago, but it actually wasn't it was a while ago. 2005, yes, it was. Yeah, yeah like the return of the goodies, mm. and that was a nice little piece of television. I don't think it was, you know, guffawing at it, but for those who haven't seen it, and it's worth trying to track out, I think it's still on YouTube somewhere. I think so, yes. If not, I'm sure there are copies floating around, but it's basically the goodies getting together on a remake of their old set. And discussing old times, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's got a lot of cut-ins and drop-ins from, you know, contemporary comedians or people who grew up watching the movies mm. and that sort of thing as well. So there's a documentary aspect to it also. i watched that again for this. I actually found that really entertaining. Yes, it is a really nice piece just to see the three of them interacting and they're very, very humble and very, very self-aware and that, I think, adds to the quality of it. It's not one of these reunion specials where they talk about how much they've changed the world or being bigger than Jesus or anything <laughs> like that. There's, there's certainly none of that and you wouldn't expect it from them. So that was very good. One we missed actually, it's Graham and Bill, and it is roughly contemporary with the ITV series, uh, is a series they wrote called Astronauts. Yes. Which is two seasons of six episodes. Yep. With live action or animated? It's live. it's live action. They don't appear in it. They're writers only. The premise for the first season is that the UK send three people into space to try and break the record for the longest amount of time spent on the space station. And the characters are very much the goodies in space. That one's a woman. Yes. So you've sort of got the leader one. You've got the scientist boffin liberal one. And then you've got the engineer working class one. Is it funny? At times. So, so no. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting watching just to sit there and watch all the episodes. You can see that there was certain themes throughout there. When you watch it, do you get a feeling that some of the episodes could very easily have been in a 10th or 11th series of The Goodies, or is it no. very, very different? It is pure sitcom stuff. Yeah. Sort of comeback Mrs. Noah meets The Goodies, really. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> <laughs> So what, is it filmed in front of a studio audience? Is it one set, basically? A couple of sets, a couple of rooms on the space station, occasionally across to the control room on Earth. Yeah, I mean, look, it obviously did well enough to get a second series, and they did sell the format to CBS in America. Didn't get past the pilot stage there, but... I mean, it's sort of, you know, the goodies winds up and they all just disappear, which isn't true. Even here in Australia, where they're perhaps not as visible. I mean, I do remember seeing them... In, in things. I mean, one, one we did actually, and, it, and it's really pre the ITV series, is Graham's great performance in Yes Minister uh, in the episode The Death List. Yes, so we'll segue then into the stuff they did individually, and that is certainly yes. one of my very strong memories is watching Yes Minister, and suddenly there's Graham. Yes. And he's only in it for one scene, but you know, there, there are some moments in comedy shows where they get a guest in and you just watch the whole of reality 
sort of warp around their performance. <laughs> mm. Peter Cook, when he turns up in the first episode of Blackadder, for example, when Peter Cook's on screen, even though he's there with you know Brian Blessed and Ron Atkinson and Tim McInerney, who cares? Like Peter Cook, he's on screen, and you can almost sort of feel every comedian just making space and letting him go. And it's very much the case here on The Ex Minister. I mean, you've got Nigel Hawthorne and Paul Eddington and Derek Folds. And literally, they just sort of like, almost physically just stand back, occasionally feed Graham a line, and just let him Just let him go up. for the two yeah. or three minutes he's on screen. Yeah, and yeah. That, is, that is really, really good. So never answer your own front door in person, and keep your car windows up and the doors locked while you're driving. Never draw up the car on the pavement side at traffic lights. You don't want a terrorist to jump in and kidnap you, do you, sir? <laughs> no, of course you don't. Now, uh, accidents, right. Never walk along the outside edge of any pavement, river, jetty, wharf, or railway platform. We don't want to make it too easy for them, do we, sir? <laughs> Especially the electric railway, so avoid the chew. Uh, electrocution, yes, that's another of their favourites. little tinkering with the telly, the kettle, the fire, the toaster, the hi-fi, the electric blanket, and Bob's your uncle. <laughs> You're a late uncle. <laughs> <laughs> so they have to be checked every time. Any questions? Well, certainly one thing that I remember not seeing Graham in, but noticing his name in the credits, was Surgical Spirit. Oh, yes. He was one of the writer's room on that and wrote a number of the episodes. And as that went into the sort of later episodes, I found that I could pick which one was a Graham Garden episode, and you haven't confirmed the credits, because <laughs> they were very acerbic, very dry, and particularly more than the others, and you'd think there'd be a lot of these in the Surgical Spirit sitcom, but he really made use of detailed medical terminology to get the gags, and it was very, very acerbic, and yeah. I have, I have some very fond memories of watching that. That was a great series. I really enjoyed that. Is that Graham's writing style, Away From The Goodies? Is he particularly acerbic and, and, and dry? Is it, is Graham it in real life. Yes. Yeah, I think okay. so. Yeah, very dry sense of humour, I think. Where that comes across, and I'll, I'll make my third and final reference to stuff I was going to talk about, was both Graham and Bill turn up at one point as a panellist in Have I Got News For You, which oh, is yes. a UK panel show. And it's interesting because the aim of a panel show is to be very gregarious entertainment studio wouldn't get the laughs graham is again very very dry and acerbic and his lines are phenomenally clever and witty but they're not laugh out loud sort of slapstick comedy or yeah. verbal slapstick so he's he doesn't kind of get the audience reaction others do bill oddy turns up a lot later in the show and he's actually made fun of quite a bit uh, partly because and we'll talk about his his work with uh wildlife documentaries but they talk about that but he is clearly having a very bad day when it was filmed and just sort of does this grumpy old man routine and talks at length and he doesn't sort of have any jokes, he says these long anecdotes. And the closing of that episode, they actually did a special outro, which is just this sort of montage of him telling these long rambling stories sort of faded in and out to various points as the rest of the crew sort of fall asleep. So <laughs> it's actually not his best moment, but I do remember that. Well, I was going to say, just with Graham on the panel show, okay. Graham was a regular panellist on a series called If I Ruled the World. Yes, with Jeremy Hardy and Clive Anderson. Yes, and he was one of the two team captains, which was sort of a political-themed show yeah. where you would have the red and the blue sides and they had to come up with opposing policies yes just disagree with the other person all the games that were revolving around it to try and win over the voters and the, yes. the audience studio audience got to vote at the end tim comes in as one of the guest panelists for an episode on the opposite side and one of the games is called i could disagree more that's right to I couldn't disagree more. Uh, a politician has to always disagree uh, with his opponents, however sensible or reasonable the policies they are espousing happen to be. So, Graham, can you disagree with anything and everything that uh, Tim and Jeremy throw at you? The final gag in that is... Graham, if I... I'd... 
as a fan, I think it's time they repeated the goodies on television. <laughs> well, you might not be able to disagree uh, more, I, but... Uh, <laughs> I couldn't disagree more. It was time to repeat them on television 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> May I just this, say... This game has been hijacked. May I just say that... Cubic laughs at the audience. But, yeah. yeah. Some of Bill's wildlife documentaries did make their way out here. Not nearly as much, though, as they did in the UK, where he, he really is a household name over there for his wildlife. Yes, well, that's the thing I was going to say. He is probably now better known over there for his wildlife programs than he is for the goodies. I also remember Tim did a couple of sitcoms in the 80s. Now, I don't remember ever seeing the second one here, which is a, a thing called You Must Be the Husband, where he plays a chap whose wife, they suddenly become incredibly wealthy after his wife becomes a best-selling author. I think a lot of the humour obviously comes from the fact that he now is sort of subservient to her. So basically holding the fort. Yeah. Hopefully Probably. better. But <laughs> it wouldn't be hard. No. But uh, I do remember him being in Me and My Girl, which was a vehicle for Richard O'Sullivan. Sorry, Man About the House and Dick Turpin, amongst others. The, the idea behind that was Richard O'Sullivan's character is a widower trying to raise his teenage daughter and have a career and meet other women and that as well. Tim plays his business partner and brother-in-law one of the, the main supporting cast. Joan Sanderson, Mrs. Richards from Faulty Towers, is also in it. She sort of plays the battle axe mother-in-law. Right. Yeah. And what sort of character was Tim playing in that? Sort of the rather gormless... Um, comic relief more Yeah, or less, more, yeah. more or less, yes. He is, he is very much, I think, probably the comic relief character. I remember watching that when I was younger, and I very much, as I've said this before, a middle-class you know, sitcom. Mm. I enjoyed it quite a lot. It was, I mean, probably now you would sort of grown a lot, but... At the time, I thought it was quite good. It actually went for six seasons. So, I that's don't pre- think... That's pretty impressive for a sitcom. It, it yeah. is. I don't think we got all of them out yeah. here. And, of course, we should give a shout-out. Whilst it wasn't after the goodies, it was during the goodies run, but Tim's cameo in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, which yes. Is, which is a very funny scene of... Uh, he's programming his supercomputer... Basically, he's playing Graham. Yes. <laughs> he, he programs his supercomputer to find the last golden ticket. It says, I won't tell. That would be cheating. I am now telling the computer that if it will tell me the correct answer, I will gladly share with it the grand prize. He says, what would a computer do with a lifetime supply of chocolate? (sighs) I am now telling the computer exactly what he can do with a lifetime supply of chocolate. Yeah, we did mention that in one of the episodes, but because uh, that actually apparently was the very last scene for that movie filmed. Mm. It was a late addition to the script, and it was the very last thing they filmed. But it, it is one of those moments of yeah. just watching that movie and it's like, what the hell, that's Jim Brooke Taylor. Yeah, well, that's right, because we knew the goodies probably before we ever got that on TV here. Oh, yes. One other thing, Bill, I mean, as well as his wildlife, he does do quite a lot of writing. He and his wife particularly start, they do quite a bit of kids' TV. Yep. I don't know much of it made its way out here. His wife, uh, Laura Beaumont, uh, has actually also written stuff for uh, things like Thomas the Tank Engine and Fireman Sam. Yeah. I know them because my kids watch them. The one thing that struck me about doing the research for this was that of all three of them, Tim's credits are endless and appear to be just ongoing. Mm. As, as an He's actor. always got yeah. work. Yeah. Always got work. Yeah. Yeah. And he did, did a lot of stage work. It's interesting. Uh, we've made a lot of observations over the last 76 episodes that Tim seems the most comfortable in front of the camera and the others were the most comfortable writing. And I think that is reflected in their later career, you're right. On the other couple of ones I had was Graham did a voice in The Simpsons. Which episode was that in? That was uh, Viva Ned Flanders, and that was in 1999 that he did that. Oh, that's the one, the Moody Blues. Yes. Yes. So, 
And then for both Bill and Tim, there was an animated Asterix in the big fight in 1989 when Bill voiced Asterix and Tim voiced Cacophonics. There you go. Oh, and Bill, of course, did Married with Children. He was in three episodes. They travel to England. They're built in um, the episodes that they're in England for. Okay. And, right. and a personal favourite, he was in The Detectives with Jasper Carrot, playing a bird watcher. So we've certainly discussed that the goodies, both as the goodies, but certainly individually, have had a lot of success and gone on and done a lot of writing and work afterwards. Which leads me to a discussion point that I've been waiting to have for a while, which is why it is that the goodies are largely forgotten in many parts of pop culture. They've got a bit of a better reputational memory here in Australia because obviously that There's couple of decades of repeats. A memory here in Australia, mm. but... But, yeah, I mean, even here now, I say this because I want to compare it to their one-time colleagues back when they were doing um, Sorry, I'll That Again and a whole lot of other stuff, David Frusher, etc., which is the group that went on to form Monty Python. And Monty Python, like every undergraduate at every university in the Western world, is familiar with Monty Python. And that has continued through the, the, the culture. The goodies, it's not. And I want to have a bit of a discussion about why that is. And I'll start off with a couple of points I want to make and then throw it to you guys. I think one of the big things that makes the difference is that Python had those three movies. So The Holy Grail, Life of Brian, which is by far, I think, the best thing that Python ever did, and The Meaning of Life, you know, they are regularly repeated on television. They're, they're the sort of thing you can sit down and watch. They're on VHS, they're on DVD. And that has, I think, held the memory of Python quite a bit and I think it's probably skewed Python's memory as well we've just gone through and watched all of the goodies and I think it held up very very well as a series yes there were the week episodes but it held up I've in the past gone back and tried to watch all of Monty Python's Flying Circus now Monty Python's Flying Circus you take the best clips from every episode and make a compilation that that is, look don't get me wrong that is brilliant some of it Python at the best is brilliant but watching Flying Circus one episode at a time some of that is just terrible I think that is one of the things with Python, because it's sketch comedy, you can of course do something like, and now for something completely different, or the stage shows that Python then went on to do, or indeed the records, mm. um, which is how I got into Python, or how I discovered Python, uh, was through the records. Yep. You can of course just weed out the best bits, recreate those, people can just forget about the stuff that now is, and I agree with you, I have watched some of python in the not too distant past and there is some really really good stuff in there but there is some really really dated and terrible stuff in there as well yeah, yeah. You, you never go to season four you're right it's very easy to sit there and go hey look at this parrot sketch look at the spanish inquisition sketch and quote it and reference it and it stays in the mind whereas the goodies you can't just sort of well you, you can't do that you sort of have to show a 30 minute episode that's mm. very hard to keep it in, in the culture i think it's really Unfair is that you know too strong a word, but it's a real shame because I think the goodies does hold up better than Flying Circus. I love their movies, particularly Life of Brian, and where they're good, they're really good. But yeah, I think that when you look at you know what the Pythons went on to, well, you also look what launched from that. I mean, Cleese by himself with Faulty Towers, even though it did terrible at the start, you know, no one was watching, it, but it built that cult. First run in Britain, no one watched it, no one understood it, but it managed to launch a second season mm. two years later when they went back to it, but it was that repeat performance that got people into it. And also Palin's Ripping Yarns, just a short-run thing, anthology. What's good in that is great, but what's dross in that is yeah. re- really dull. And, and co-written with Terry Jones. I, I need to give a shout-out here, though. 
when talking about this to the reunion special of I'm Sorry I Read That Again, which was made, I think, about 20 years after they finished. Yeah. And the large thrust of the plot of that is basically all of them just giving a lot of uh, grief to John Cleese about how he just went and sold out and now he's a millionaire you know, with his own space shuttle, the SS Gibbon or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, they don't like him and he sort of you know, wants to go and leave the planet and then they sort of forgive him. Oh, John, we still love you, but it, it is just all about, you know, basically John's gone off to America and made millions and they're still slaving away. I was just going to ask, is the reason why I say Monty Python is more better remembered than the goodies not a function of the number of repeats, but that people regard... Monty Python is more adult fare, aimed at adult. And the goodies is kids fare, which is more forgettable. This was one of the things I was going to lead into. There is a change of perception with the BBC about the goodies across the 1980s. They don't get a lot of repeats. And the, and the three goodies themselves have been quite vocal at different times about the lack of repeats. Or they might put one or two episodes on, but they don't repeat the whole series. And there does seem to have been this real change of opinion that it just gets classed really as kids' television um, or kids' TV that adults kind of like. There are a couple of quotes in, in Andrew Pixley's book from John Howard Davies, who was the producer who originally commissioned them, but when he was head of comedy at the BBC, he made the decision not to repeat them because he wasn't A, confident that it would pull in an audience and that it really wasn't suitable for the adult time slot he was really looking to fill. So whilst you get, and as we mentioned earlier, you get these sort of repeats as some others do have them and porridge and the good life, you don't really ever get the goodies. And look, there are obviously conspiracy theories, you know, and I think they themselves have said at times, obviously someone in the BBC really didn't like them or was not keen on having them come back or the BBC are unhappy with us or whatever. Rolf Harris was pulling in favours maybe. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There is actually a thing, and this is much later, it's in the early 2000s when Jane Root was head of BBC Two. There were a couple of times they were going to do some retrospectives and feature the goodies. She basically vetoed the goodies because she didn't like them. There is obviously this feeling that the goodies really are unwanted and unloved at this point. Except in Australia. Yes, except in Australia, where obviously we're still getting repeats. Again, you know, you're guaranteed at least one run of the goodies every year across most of the 1980s. One note I did have, and actually just to show the BBC's lack of love, one thing that happens... In 1988, with the goodies, is Comic Relief at this point, obviously, has been going for a couple of years, and they do one of their comedy specials and approach the goodies to be a part of it. Unfortunately, and again, it probably shows the BBC's attitude to them. The segment they pre-recorded was shown at about 11.30 at night, by which obviously most people watching telecast had gone to bed, and half of what they recorded was cut out. Wow. So, yeah, they apparently, again, were very unhappy with how that was treated. So it does sort of show, I think, perhaps, the BBC's attitude at that point. Is the BBC's attitude towards the show after they leave the BBC justified? Look, I don't think so, because I think that The Goodies holds up better than a lot of things that have had much better treatment. And you've got three very talented people, and Graham Gardner, Bill Odd, and Tim Brooke Taylor, whether as a trio or individually, I think have got a lot to offer and probably could have offered a lot more and been a lot more prominent in the 80s particularly if they'd had the chance. I think the BBC did miss a couple of tricks there. So the UK do start getting screenings, obviously, once satellite and then cable start to become more prevalent, but that's later. But, yeah. So the final thing we need to mention in terms of the goodies, after the goodies and their legacy, is they have had some limited release on home video, home DVD. ITV get the first four episodes of their season out on VHS quite quickly. It's within six months of the series winding up. Yeah, which is an example of them being a much more commercially focused company yeah. than BBC. Yeah, I mean, it's back in the days when videotapes cost like, you know, £40 or something. But... Yeah, but it was also the time where you'd go to the video library and there would be the goodies. Yes, indeed. 
The BBC do do one single goodies release in the 80s. They bring out the goodies in the beanstalk. Yes, I forgot about that. Yes, I did see that one. And again, it's 40 pounds or something. And I do remember that being in the video library here because I remember borrowing it. But the first real release of the goodies on VHS comes in the early 90s, 94, when they do the two tapes, Mm. the red one and the purple one. It's only a selection of episodes, and again, you... Three on each, I believe. Yes, that's right. And again, you are sort of in that thing where other series are starting to get more complete releases. But those episodes are the only ones that came out on VHS. There are only those six of those releases. That's right. And that was, as you say, at a time when a lot of series were getting large releases. Yeah, that was Red Red Dwarf was getting its proper Hmm. complete releases on VHS, that sort of thing. The goodies themselves are again quite unhappy with the releases. I mean, they were asked, obviously, to go and have a look at them and, and pick the episodes they wanted on the tapes because that was their choice. I mean, obviously, there were rights clearances and stuff that obviously played into that as well. But again, they're quite unhappy with the release because they felt there was very little promotion by the BBC. What promotion there was was really heavy on the nostalgia factor. So it's like, hey, you remember those crazy people in the 1970s? Here's some of them on tape, pushing that real nostalgia factor. And of course, there's no screenings on the BBC or anything to sort of help prompt people that yes, you can now go out and buy some of these episodes on tape. You know, sort of quietly pushed out and hopefully that'll shut the people up. Speaking of quietly pushed out, we then quite a few years later start to get a trickle of DVD releases. Yes. And again, it's just assortments of random episodes. Well, it is. And it's not a BBC release, of course. It's done by an external company, Network DVD, who now have a contract to do a lot of the BBC's back catalogue. And well, they have announced they're doing a big goodies release. And hopefully by the time this goes out, we'll know exactly what that is. So you can all go back and listen to the podcast whilst you're watching all the DVDs. Yes, that's exactly right. There was also the very first videotape was released on DVD in America. Oh, yes. Under the Wham! label, which they released uh, Kitten Con, Scout Rages and Scatty Safari. That's the only place you can get Scatty Safari on DVD at the moment. All right, well, that certainly covered the media that the goodies is out on. and We hope that there'll be a lot more. I think the Holy Grail remains... A complete release or season mm-hmm. sets and we'll see what comes do we have any other general points we want to make about the goodies after the goodies before we call it a night tonight probably one thing i was going to say we're getting into the 90s and we'll talk more about this next week is we're now starting to get into the thing where the internet starts to become more prevalent and of course you then get the rise of fan clubs and fans can now contact each other and of course we see not one but two fan clubs started here in australia one other note i did have and look it's really often a total tangent the bbc in the early 80s did one of their prop sales which included the bbc trandom which was bought by a chap called hugo spouse now his brother rory then actually refurbishes the bike and with a couple of mates does a ride from botswana up through africa to egypt uh, to raise money for charity Okay. Yeah, and there is a book. Yeah, it is. It's a several thousand kilometre journey. I think there's a small documentary as well, but he releases a book about his experiences called Three Men on a Bike. Their trip happens in the early 90s. Mm. And I think when they got back to Britain, there was a thing where one of the Today shows had them and the bike in and got at least one or two of the goodies in to, you know, be reunited with the Trandom that had undertaken this immense journey and I think it was very much well I'm glad you managed to ride it all that distance we couldn't ride it more than 50 feet before we fell off and I see the brakes work now obviously (laughs) sort of of type jokes but but there you go yeah so a long life after the goodies yes well that's been a good conversation I hope we've uh, all enjoyed that and listeners I hope you've enjoyed looking at the goodies after the goodies as well we'll be back in our next episode the second of our three finale specials 
where we're going to have a look at the goodies in our home country of Australia. Bill, we must prepare for the trip. Look out, uh, half a dozen jumbucks, pack two, <laughs> no, three coolie bars in the tucker bag. Graham, you better go and whack the diddler while I press a clean pair of billabongs. Now, <laughs> Australia, here we come. <laughs> You've been listening to the Goodies Pirate Podcast, the Australian podcast that puts the good in goodies. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode or your thoughts on upcoming episodes. So please drop us a line by email at pirategoodiespc at gmail.com. Send us a tweet at at pirategoodiespc or find us on Facebook at facebook.com stroke pirategoodiespc. Goodies, goody, goody, yum, yum. (laughs) 